Hello and welcome to another weekly teaching from Vineyard Community Church, St. Louis. I would typically stand and teach, but today, uh, this week, I was telling people, uh uh-oh, I didn't practice putting this down. There we go. This is kind of how it's going to go today. Um, As I was preparing the teaching, if you don't know me, I've been, you know, in several churches, I've preached hundreds of times, and I've prepared, you know, I have a kind of way of preparing, and I felt like this, this week, God was saying, put that aside, and let's reflect. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit to represent kind of like the mood of the teaching today, which is, I have some notes, and in fact, uh, there are some half sheets there on, on the chairs, or you might have gotten one, um, and I need, to, I need to give you some uh, an introduction because we're not used to this. This isn't, isn't a normal way that we, you know, have teaching and, and stuff and, and have notes and things for various reasons. Um, so let me just say a couple things about this. One, some of you are going to want to follow along very closely. Uh, and I know that Emily is one of them. <laughs> uh, and I am typically one of them. So just kind of put that aside because it may or may not be that close. Uh, I'm going to, I'll follow along, but you know, please, please allow yourself to, I guess allow me some freedom to go where this, this goes, but I'll, I'll follow along as best I can. Um, but actually, I wanted to say that this idea was, came from the youth. They were, you know, in conversation with Emily and others were like, you know what would be helpful for us? Just, just something kind of visually to track with the teaching and like, how far along? When's he going to be done? Is he getting close? You know, I don't know if they said that, but that's. Uh, that would be the other thing, is just because they're spaced evenly on the paper doesn't mean that I'm going to like speak them in the same space. So just let that go too. Um, on the other side, if you turn that over, you will see how I've prepared for those of you who are creative. <laughs> so, <clears throat> doodle, color, whatever. So don't feel bound by that piece of paper in any way. Okay, so that's, that's all that. We've been in this kingdom story series the entire summer because it's so important, so valuable, so central to our faith. And today I was asked to come and kind of finish things up. And I, what I want to do is I just want to reflect together using a really prominent experience in my life as, as sort of the framework to reflect with you how I have lived in this story. Um, not to tell you how to live in it, not to, like, not to do that, but to just reflect in front of you. I felt like that's what I was supposed to do this morning. And to allow God to just allow, you know, give you the freedom to reflect as you hear some of the things that, 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 uh, that I have for you today. So, um, this is, the, this is the title, What Sort of Tale We've Fallen Into. Uh, does anybody recognize where that comes from? This is like trivia. Everybody loves trivia, right? This is from a very prominent novel, um, a series, Lord of the Rings. Anybody? Okay. Uh, the second book in the Lord of the Rings series. Um, and I, I gravitated to this several years ago, um, this, this idea that we've fallen into a tale. 
And if you don't know the Lord of the Rings stories, they're written by J.R. Tolkien. And he was a Christian man. He was friends, contemporaries with C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia Chronicles. And they were both really interested in how to like, communicate the mystery of the kingdom of God and the story of God's uh, kingdom in, in um, fiction. And so he wrote the Lord of the Rings series. I want to show you a quick scene. Okay? And this is a scene of, of two of the hobbits who are the, 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 little, the little hobbits, and they're the weak weaklings. They're the ones who are the central parts of the story, and they're on a journey to destroy the, the, the evil ring, the ring of power. And it's been tasked to them, and they're, they're, they've been, you know, this is the second book. Um, they are exhausted. They're, they're um, afraid. They're, um, they, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Why are we doing this? They want to stop, they want to turn back, but they have to get this ring and destroy it to save the world. That's where they are. Have you been there? Not, not exactly there, but have you been there? Like, man, what kind of tale have I fallen into? What's, what is life, what is God doing right now? That's where they are. Can we show that? It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furlow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? But there's some good in this world, Mr. Ford. And it's worth fighting for. In the book, they don't, he doesn't say it there, but in the book, he ends that speech with, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. A great question. So that's what this series has been about this summer, is sharing what sort of tale we've fallen into. And so I want to reflect on that. And I'm not going to tell you the tale, we've done that already, but I have a diagram just to remind us and, and just to kind of keep it in front of us as I reflect a little bit. But we are here. Okay, that's, you've seen those maps, right? And I don't know, malls, do they have malls anymore? You know, you go and it's like, we are here at an amusement park. I guess, of course, that's the, 
they have like your phone now, but um, <clears throat> on a map we are here. And so we've, what we've said is um, that the Scriptures tell us that there is a this age. That's the language in the Bible and in the Old Testament. And our Jewish friends are living in this age uh, and they believe that we are here in an age that of a broken world where there is sickness and disease and we experience And I don't have to describe the world because you live in it. That's this age. And they believe that the day is going to come. The Bible talks about the day in which God is going to show up and usher in a new age uh, or the age to come in which everything is going to change. He is going to be fully present. All of the things that aren't Him are going to be wiped away. Think of all of those things in your life, right? Brokenness, sickness, disease, pain, suffering, death. All of that stuff will be wiped away. And, then, and the age to come will come. This is the picture that is um, rightly interpreted in, in our Bibles. Um, but, you know, we know that Jesus showed up and turned things around a little bit and redefines uh, what these mean. He shows up before that day. And he says things like, the kingdom of God is near. And so something has happened in Jesus showing up. And so we understand, reading the New Testament, that Jesus has come a first time, that first red line, and that second time will be the day. We read about that when Jesus returns, and then uh, we don't know exactly how that's going to happen, but Jesus is going to return and set everything right. And that will be the day. Look where we are, right? We're, we're between those times. And so we've said this summer that the yellow has kind of broken into the blue to create this green of between the ages. And we're living between the ages, we've said. Again, I'm not going to go into it. That's what this summer was about. Feel free to go back and listen. And so the question is, this is the tale we've fallen into. We know the tale. So what? How does knowing the tale help us and inform how we are to live today? That's the question for today. And so the diagram that I have just in front of us, if you're wanting to draw, um, is, is right there. The scripture I want to use is in Philippians um, chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. I don't have the whole one up there. I'll read the whole one here. But this is Paul talking, and if you read Paul, you understand that he was living in this story all the time. His brain just, he just knew how to live in this story and what it meant to live in between the times in this story. And so this gives us a clue here in this passage as he's writing to the, the church in Philippi and to us. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, listen to this language. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In the story is what he's saying. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he describes it here. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. And then he says, their mind is set on earthly things. They're not living in the story. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Can you, can you just hear that? The ringing in there of like, there's a, hey, we have a future, a glorious future that, that, that we can trust in, that's broken through into this present and we can live in the story today. I know the future's better. I know there's brokenness now, but we can live in the story. Keep your eyes on people who live like us, right? Keep your mind on the right things, on the things of heaven. And so for us today, I'm, and I'm going to sit here, like I said, I promised, I'm just going to reflect. This is where we're staying the rest of the time, is just asking this question. How does knowing that we are here in this story Help us to really live today as citizens of heaven. And I'm going to frame this uh, by telling you a lot about my dad. Um, I might have mentioned that my dad uh, passed away several years ago. Um, 26 years, 4 months, 16 days, 16 hours, 15 and a half hours. Not that I think about that. Um, he passed away of cancer early, he was 59, and so I just want to share some of, you, some of that story, not just to tell you the story, but again, to reflect on how that experience, my experience with him and knowing him and going through that with him, the cancer with him and his death in the last 26 years, how that has framed my understanding of living between the times. Does that make sense? So again, I'm not prescribing this for you, I'm reflecting and helping you to reflect <clears throat> and he was a great example. You'll, you'll get that from this. So my dad was a brilliant scholar. He was uh, one of those uniquely brilliant people. He was, went to Harvard at 16, like that brilliant. You know, graduated at 19, and he was a Rhodes Scholar. He was an author. He was a, a college professor, and um, just a brilliant, brilliant person, but he was also a great dad. He was just he was just around a lot. I remember it, his, his funeral, and, you know, it was just um, tons of my friends were there, high school friends, because my dad coached soccer, and he coached me was from before I could remember all the way through high school. And he coached a lot of my friends, and he started the, the soccer club in our, in our town, and so a lot of people, a lot of kids knew him. And he coached a lot of kids. And so at, at, at his funeral, one of my high school friends, maybe, maybe more, I remember one saying, you know, the thing I remember about your dad he was always at our stuff. Like, he was always at the games. If you were playing in a game, my dad was there. I literally can't remember a single time. There might have been, there had to have been. But from the time where I was young until I graduated from high school, I had played in thousands of games. I, had, I was in the marching band. I was, you know, I did all of these things. I don't remember a single time he wasn't there. And as is typical, he wouldn't, stand in, he wouldn't sit in the stands. He would be like, like on the sidelines or whatever taking pictures. He just loved to do that as an amateur photographer. And so everybody saw him, is my point. Like he was, <laughs> everybody knew that he was always there because he was always like right beside the playing. Like, who is that guy? Well, that's, that's Mr. Mackey, they would say. So anyway, so that's a little bit about him. And so we got the phone call, um, like I said, many years ago, and we had been married about a year, and it was May, I think, and, and we got the phone call, the dreaded phone call, telling us that he was sick, and obviously being really shocked about that. 
Um, and I can't describe how that is. Many of you have been through that. And, and he had been healthy. He swam in international competitions, like the Commonwealth Games. He was super healthy. He was, he was winning you know, racquetball tournaments at 60 and all of that stuff. And so we had never experienced crisis in our family. It was, it was a wonderful family. And so this was just rocked the world kind of phone call. And so from there on, obviously, we spent the next 11 months living a certain way. We, and you may, have heard, you may have heard this phrase, you know, it's a great country song, to live like you're dying. You know, and so that, that, that's quite literal for people who are facing cancer. It's like, how do you, what do you do with the time that you have left? It was a very, very real question that we asked, and we spent, I spent, we spent 11 months living that out. And so for him, um, you know, some people who live like they're dying, you know, the country song, uh, there was a country song that I've used before that's like, I went skydiving, and any country fans out there? I can't remember the, the lyrics. I went skydiving, and Rocky Mountain climbing, and 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> So, you know, some people it's like, okay, I've got, I've got a limited amount of time. I'm going to go ride a bull. I'm going to go skydiving. I'm going to go climb a mountain. Bucket, bucket list kind of things, right? And we did a little bit of that. We went to, had a family reunion in Bermuda. We, we um, said, you know, let's, let's, we spent as much time together as we could, and we did some traveling and did a little bit of that. But here's the thing. Here's, here's how he lived in this story. He, was a, he, he taught Bible, he lived in the Bible, he understood the Bible, he wrote his own kind of Chronicles of Narnia series and stuff, so he was, that's where he lived as well and how he thought about his life. But for him, that last 11 months, what struck me so much was it didn't look much different. It's very interesting. And in fact, near the end, it was about January. I think it was about January. He was so weak. It was lung cancer, and he was so weak, and he could, you know, you know, it, it, it was difficult for him to get out, and it was difficult for him to breathe, and like it was difficult for him to talk, and he insisted on continuing to go to his college class to teach it. And most of us, you know. He would have been justified to not go, you know? Like, the college wasn't like, no, you have to teach, you know? The college was basically saying, do what you want. Do what you need to do. Be with your family. Do what you need to do. And he said, I, I want to teach. It's what I do. It's what I love. And I remember him saying, I want to go be with my students because that's what I love to do. And so for him, those 11 months, that's one of my reflections is, to live like you're dying when you're living in the story, it just, it just looks like your life. You do the things in the story today. You don't wait until you're dying. You know, you find things that you care about. You find people that you love and you, and you be with them. You, you find work that matters. You know, That's the eternal kind of life that Jesus talks about, by the way. When he talks about eternal life, it's not necessarily the length of life, it's the depth of life. And you just, when you're in the story, you, you embrace the story. How can I live out this story? And you live that way. 
And then when you do face the end of your life, you're thinking to yourself, I've, this is how I live. Why would I change? This is, this is what it looks like to live in this story. So that's one reflection. Another reflection is this. Jesus said, uh, if you want to be the greatest, do you guys remember that? If you want to be the greatest, you must become a, starts with an S, a servant. This is another reflection. So my dad, as I said, was, um, you know, he was a Rhodes Scholar, um, which is this incredibly prestigious scholarship that you study at Oxford, and he, um, I'll tell you more of his story another time, but um, as we go, but but he was a Rhodes Scholar, and he uh, was educated, highest educated. You can't get more educated than my dad. He got a, he got a doctorate from Oxford. He got a doctorate from, Har- from uh, Princeton, you know, undergraduate seminary. He got a master's degree from, I can't remember. He was an engineer for a while um, before, he, before God called him into ministry. And so he's just this brilliant man. And he got this question all the time. Why aren't you teaching at Harvard? You know where he taught? Just... Really, nowhere special, to be totally honest. <laughs> Westminster College, Western Pennsylvania, town of 3,000, you know, Amish farms around it. Uh, the school was about 1,600 kids. It was a liberal arts college, nothing special. Good, good college, but nothing special. Hey, Peter Mackey, why are you teaching here? <laughs> you could teach anywhere. And his answer was always something like I'm living in this story. Something like, because these kids, they could never get into Harvard. They're never going to get a Harvard education. That's what colleges like this are for. These are great colleges for kids who can't, you know, get into Ivy Leagues. And so... He said, I'm going to bring Harvard to them. And if you talk to the, to the kids in his class, and, and several after his passing, of course, who had graduated, and they, they would contact us and tell us about the impact that he had on their lives, and they would say, he was the hardest professor at the entire college. <laughs> and my dad, he knew that. And he didn't do it out of, like, you know, ego, it was like, this is what it feels like to get a world-class education in this class. That's another way to live in the story. It's just, what has God given you? How can you live that out and give it away? It's not for us to keep, and it's not for us to like build this like kingdom of our own, right? That's, it, it's not our story. It's His story. So how can we live out the gifts that he has given us. Most of us, if not all of us, are not going to have the education that he did, but we have gifts to give. And how are we living that out and giving them away? Another reflection. He was invited to speak at a chapel service at Westminster um, as he was fighting this and was asked to reflect, to basically do what I'm doing right now, 
to reflect on how he was dealing with this. Specifically being a Christian man, a faithful man, who was giving his life away, who was doing his best to follow where God was leading him, um, who in all of his imperfections, and he was, you know, you're only getting the good stories, he, he was plenty imperfect, uh, in all of his imperfections was, was living a life of service and honoring Christ and dedicating his life to the kingdom. Like, how did you get cancer? People ask that. You know, because we want to think that you've heard that like the safest place to be in the world is in the will of God. You've heard that probably, right? It's like, what does that even mean? And so we're like, what do you think? You're like this brilliant theologian scholar. Like, what's going on in your head? You know, when you're thinking about you got cancer and you are a faithful man, you are someone who's giving your life away. And isn't it like when you're following God, like, isn't, doesn't he like, like protect you and stuff? And so all of these questions were swirling around. Um, and I, I have that printed out, by the way. I don't have it. I could probably share that with you, his, his message. Um, but it was so helpful. And I, and I knew he was, he was doing it for people because people were so stuck and they were hurting. And they were questioning God's goodness. And they were questioning whether it was all real. And so he just spent the time kind of reassuring people. Like, this has not rocked my faith. And in fact, he used this passage, you may know this passage in, in Matthew. They were asking Jesus the same thing, like, like, why are bad things happening to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? And like all of this, you know, this really, this mysterious stuff. And Jesus used uh, an, you know, an agrarian image. He said, well, God sends the rain and the sun on both the good and the evil. Okay, not much more explanation than that. He said, just look around. God is good to, to bad people. They, they have good people in their lives. They experience love. They experience meaning and purpose as best they can. There's a lot of good that, quote, bad people, and I'm not, you know, whoever they are. I'm... God is good to them. You see that? Sun shines on them. Sun shines on good people, however you want to define that. The rain falls on both of us too. It's not like Christians walk around and like there's rain all around and like wherever the Christian goes, the, the clouds part and like the, the sun shines. You know what I mean? Like what kind of life, like what are we saying here? Do you know? If you really dive down into like the God protects me thing or the safest place to be in, is in the will of God, think through that for a minute and think how impossible that is because we live between the times. We live in the not yet. The rain still falls. And he used lots of other metaphors, by the way. Weeds, you know, and uh, in the wheat. And so the rain and the sun both fall. You will have trouble in this world, Jesus said. And so my dad just spent the time reassuring people. He said, look, basically we live in a world where there's trouble. I ran into trouble. I'm not going to complain. And then he went on to say all of the things he was grateful for. He chose gratitude over bitterness. And so when you're living in this story, you, you kind of can see all of the good. Even It's not denying the suffering. 
right? It's not to say, oh, you're suffering. Oh, don't worry, God is good. Like, you know, don't feel the pain. He wasn't saying that. And I think that, that you know, we don't say that in, in, in the vineyard. We say it's the already and the not yet. You will feel the pain. But in the already, you can be grateful for all of the blessings that God has given you. And so he lived in the already and the not yet, and he, he didn't give a clear answer to people. He just said, this is how it is. And this is how I've chosen to live in this way, to be grateful. Another reflection. He, he was the, he was the um, I'm going to make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself, sorry. He was the department chair at Westminster College, and so he got to choose his office. And I think there were three offices for the theology department, and he chose the smallest one. And it happened to have no windows in it. And it happened to be connected to this beautiful, kind of gothic, old chapel building that had asbestos in it. And so for 26 years or so that he was there, he was in a windowless office breathing asbestos. And nobody knew it until, you know, those of us who are old enough to live through the asbestos is bad, and here's how you get rid of it. And so eventually Westminster obviously addressed it, <clears throat> but not soon enough. Um, so I can see like some of you are like, I can see some of you know where I'm going with this, right? So he's this faithful man who chooses to serve and chooses the smallest office, and it ends up killing him. Like that's how I thought of it and how I've thought about it for years. And that's, there's truth to that. And so he had to decide what to do about that too. Because accountability is, is, is not unbiblical. Justice is not unbiblical. I don't believe we could have a, we could have a talk if you, if you have a different opinion. But, but he had to decide what to do about the fact that negligence ended up giving him cancer. And so he thought about it. He thought about bringing, holding Westminster accountable. But he came to us one day, it was, it was relatively early on, and, and he, said, he said he was lying in bed, and he was thinking and praying, and he was asking, what, what do we do about this? Because he'd, he'd, he'd given his life to this institution, right? It wasn't this easy, like, you know, answer. And he'd given his life to this institution, and he loved it, and he loved the people, but man. And so he's praying, and he's lying in bed, and he told the story to me afterwards. He said, I was lying in bed, and I'm praying, and he said, just like that, clearest answer to prayer immediately came to my mind. He said, God told me you need to forgive them. And then he went on to say, it also came to my mind that, my, that you know, he said, your mom, my mom was, was still a professor there. 
And he said that you have this relationship with this and you want the relationship to continue. And what would happen to the relationship if you took them to court? And, and so it just became this like very clear, that's, it's not even a question. God was saying, this is not even, you can just stop thinking about that. It's not a question of what you should do. You should forgive them and move on and get on to what I have for you. I'm not suggesting, again, prescribing that you should forgive everyone who's done wrong to you. That's not the reflection. Here's my reflection is when you're living in this story, even when you have like two good options, we ask the author what he wants. Because we're living in his story. That was his way of saying, this isn't my decision. I want to live in his story. I want to do what God wants me to do. And so for him, God may have, you know, in other cases, God may have... uh, may have said, you need to hold them accountable. I, I think that that is absolutely true sometimes. But in this case, he said, forgive them, move on. The relationship is to continue, and my mom did teach there for several more years. And so living in the story allows us to zoom out and see a bigger perspective. This is not just this particular instance happening to me. It's happening within a larger story. And we can ask the author of the story for his guidance and his wisdom. I'm not sure when I'm supposed to stop. Whenever. David's like, whenever. I'm getting close. Okay, I've got, I've got one more. I, I forgot to ask. That was one of the things I forgot to ask. I've got one more reflection, then a kind of a closing thing. Um, So I told you he was an author, and he was, um, he was the editor of a series for Westminster College, a biblical perspective series that, that continues today. And <clears throat> he finished his book that was going to go into the series on the day that he died. Um, and he, obviously he was too weak, had been 11 months of battling cancer, and he was... He was so weak, he couldn't really move, and, <clears throat> you know, the body was failing, and um, it was difficult for him to speak, and he was, he was in our home. And he motioned for my mom to come down right to his mouth, because he could only whisper. She came down and he, and he motioned for her to get something to write on. And this is what he said. He said, as days become hours, God's goodness becomes greater and greater than ever. I stand with his glorious light calling me, and I know I shall see, I shall see and rejoice in him forever. Put that up so you can see it. So here's a man who was experiencing the darkest of the not yet. 
He had experienced 11 months of physical pain, of emotional anguish, of hoping for the best, preparing for the worst, praying, seeking healing, all of those things. And here he was at the very, very end. And he was overwhelmed with what? God's goodness. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. That's not an emotion he conjured up. That's not him trying to like mentally manipulate, oh well, how do I think about this in this moment? He, he, had the, he didn't have the energy for that. This was a reality, a, a real experience of the goodness of God. And I believe he could actually sense a light calling him in that moment. This for me, my reflection on this is, if in that moment, the worst of the worst, God, God's goodness is present with you. What else is there? You know, nothing can take me away from the love of God. Nothing can separate me from that. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, what? Thou art with me. That changes the way you live, right? That's, that's living in the story, the between the times. That's the facing death, but living in the goodness of God and believing in the goodness of God. What an amazing picture. I do want to leave you with a picture here. Um, I did say that we went... Uh, we spent the, those 11 months. We didn't know how long it was, of course. You know, um, and so the first summer, that was about May when I got that phone call and he got the diagnosis. And so that summer, we planned a family reunion in Bermuda. Berm, not, Bermuda wasn't a random choice. He had grown up there. Um, and so that was part of his gratitude speech was like, <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the most beautiful place on planet Earth. I'm pretty grateful for that. So we went to Bermuda with and his two brothers, um, came and their families, and we, and we spent <clears throat> some time in, in Bermuda. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was relatively early on, a couple months into the diagnosis, and so we were still processing it was early, like how long is he going to live, and how do we live well, and, and so there was all of that. There was still mystery and curiosity, and um, what is this going to be like, and he was still doing that as well, and um, we got a, Bermuda's really a, a thin island, and so pretty much everything is on the beach. And so we, we, uh, we you know, we, we got a, a villa on the beach, and everybody st uh, uh, stayed there. And I can't remember, I'm trying to rack my brain if it was in the morning or when it was, but, you know, we would just go out on the beach and hang out and go into the water. And I went out, and <clears throat> I, there was no one else there. And my dad was standing in the water, the shoes off, just, just, just looking, just looking into the ocean. You see it? And I had a camera. I took this picture.
I didn't ask him what he was thinking about, so I don't have anything to tell you. And I think that's for the better. I think we're supposed to wonder. He knew his life was ending soon. He was loving being with his family, the already. He was facing death, the not yet. One thing he did say later was he was just he was reflecting again. He was very reflective. He said, I wonder in heaven if every day feels like Christmas morning and Easter morning all the time. So I have a feeling that's kind of what he was doing. Hmm. I wonder what heaven's gonna be like. I'm really curious. That's how you live in the story. You're curious. What's heaven like? Living as a citizen of heaven, we live today in such a way that heaven kind of gets into us and spills out and we experience the already even as we experience the not yet. And we reflect and we try to live out that story in our own context.